5 of Psyche and Spirit with Rilendra. I'm Rilendra, and today I'd like to read to you from another one of my articles from 2020. I'm going to be going through them chronologically here. Uh, part of the reason I'm doing this, I've written these articles and, and I've had a number of people like really really respond positively to them and, and give me feedback that, that these articles, like, they were articulating what was inside them, but they couldn't figure out how to say that maybe they were feeling alone in, in noticing certain things that were similar to what I was putting out there not being able to talk about it. And some people uh, also, um, fewer people, but some people have have had an experience with these articles that, that really contributed to them changing their perception, opening up to certain realities that had been not evincing themselves yet. But some, some of the folks who've been following my articles, you know, have tried to share them and, and with some success, you know, they've kind of gotten a following with them. But sometimes we'll try to share it with somebody and, and this is how I got introduced to the acronym um, uh, TLDR. I'm like, T TLDR, what is that? Too long, didn't read. Because <laughs> these articles, they tend to be long-form articles. Um, and it's not even just things that are too long that people don't read. Like A lot of people just don't read anything anymore. They just don't read. Our minds have been atrophied by smartphones. Uh, and there's so much demand, so many demands on our time. We're constantly chasing the next email that's going to demand this next thing. Some sort of two-factor authentication. We can't even sign into anything. We've got to have 500 passwords just to even use the internet. And then that's not good enough. Then they're sending an email or a text message. Now they're trying to like force us into biometric identification just to use certain websites. You've got to get your face scanned by the machine. Well, this is not for your security. I can promise you that. This is for the security of the technocratic oligarchs. But that's another story. The point I was trying to make is that um, I wanted to read these long form articles um, out loud and record them on video so that for people for whom it's a barrier to read the articles themselves can engage with them as a podcast, listen to it while doing the dishes, um, play the video, you know, you might just like be listening to the video, but maybe you want to see my face and see my gestures and my ways <laughs> while you listen to me talk. Um, 
I know I've listened to a lot of videos and watched a lot of videos, especially over these past two years. That's a lot of what's helped open my eyes. So, I'll be going through them all. Uh, but today I'd like to read an article I wrote in October. I believe it was October. Yeah, it was October of 2020. This one's called The Sacred Left and Right or Deliverance from the Loving Embrace of the Machine. And yes, in October, so this was, was just, the election was coming up, right? The big 2020 election. And so this question of like, who are you going to vote for? What side are you on? Was really up. And, and I'd been part of the left for 20 years and was suddenly like, no, no, this has all gone horribly wrong. But what am I going to do politically? Well, I was having discussions about it and I wrote this article. So, without further ado, here it is. The Sacred Left and Right. Now, I've uh, recently experienced a sea change in my politics, finding the waters of belief to have drastically shifted around me. In February of 2020, I believed myself to be firmly rooted in the left as I had been for about 25 years. And I'd even considered myself a denizen of the far left all the way back since 2001. And I thought being on the left was all about freedom, dignity, liberty, equality, and democracy. And that was where I belonged, in opposition to authoritarian forms of governance, action, thought, and belief, which I associated with the right. I had thought being on the right was something that made sense for your pocketbook if you were a millionaire or richer, and that otherwise it made no sense to be on the right, unless your primary political motivation was a cultural issue that was unpopular on the left, usually an expression of either religious, racial, or gender bigotry of some kind that you wish to impose on the whole of society. As alienated as I now feel from those on the left, who still think about left and right the way I used to, I also feel liberated in the ability to see the right differently, and in my ability to now see both the sacred and the authoritarian forms in each. The COVID lockdown was the activating factor that changed everything for me. So I previously authored the companion article to this one, um, which I released as a webcast episode um, just prior to this one. And that's about uh, my experience going through lockdown in 2020 and how it started to change my sense of what was true. And I understand that some will believe that, that COVID's much more dangerous than a regular infectious disease. And, and I, I do agree that it is slightly more dangerous, but I disagree that it is much, much more dangerous. Um, perhaps 
It's believed that that a disease is dangerous will only show up once in a century, and therefore there is no danger of permanent authoritarianism. Uh, one might believe that all of the lockdowns, the social distancing, and the masking measures are effective at curtailing the spread, not just delaying the spread. Um, that COVID would be far more deadly and devastating if these measures had not been implemented. Perhaps they believe that if stricter measures had been implemented, the effects of COVID would be less still. Maybe they likely believe that in a year or two, global vaccination will eliminate the disease entirely. And then it'll just be another hundred years or so before the next superbug arrives. So it's just like one of those once in a century things where we just suffer through for a few years and that's it. Our leaders will willingly give us our rights back. We won't have to insist on them. We'll be allowed to shake hands, hug, uncover our faces and gather again without having to prove we are without disease. These lockdowns aren't authoritarianism, they're just sensible science. After all, our sensible scientists in leadership positions wouldn't recommend these measures unless they were scientifically verified to be correct. Well, fast forward now to May 2022, and it seems, for the moment at least, that regular life has resumed, the measures have been removed, with the exception of vaccine passports, which uh, many places still have. So that's a whole question. But the other ones, the social distancing, the masking, the lockdowns, those seem to have all gone away. But I don't know how much you trust in that, my dear viewer slash listener. <laughs> I'm popping out of the article now just to talk. But I don't know if you've seen or heard what's going on in Shanghai, in China. A city of 30 million people under harsh authoritarian lockdown again. Is it just a matter of time? We're going to wait till next flu season in November and then find these things get rolled out again? Is it preparation for something else? I don't know. I'm grateful that the measures are currently not there with the exception of those vaccine passports, but not trusting. Not in the slightest. So let me pop back into the article and provide my response to that justification that I walked through. From the inside of authoritarianism, there is actually no such thing as authoritarianism. There's only the common sense to obey the authorities and trust them in everything they say. And I understand the mainstream narrative. It goes like this, the, the authorities don't coordinate their responses. They simply allow truth to rise to the surface in the free marketplace of ideas and by the invisible hand of the scientific method. 
they themselves have also risen to the status of authority through natural selection of meritocracy. We would know if the authorities were misleading us because that knowledge would also rise to the top, faithfully reported by the mainstream press, which has likewise been formulated by a naturally selected meritocratic process that we can implicitly trust. Well, that mainstream narrative is unfalsifiable and it's circular in its reasoning if one accepts its premise, which is the policy authorities cannot be misleading us because if they were, the media authorities would tell us they were doing so because we can trust the authorities. Sometimes the media authorities do tell us when the policy authorities have misled us and the problem is corrected. There are no times in which the policy and media authorities both mislead us on the same issue. That's the circular narrative. If one is to oppose authoritarianism, one must be willing to consider the possibility that the authorities may be abusing their power. Otherwise, one will never be able to detect the presence of an authoritarian regime. Now, I'm inviting the consideration of our current human moment from that possibility, as that is the only possible way to tell the difference. Are we participating in the sensible restrictions that all good informed people would willingly agree to, even if not forced or coerced by the state? Or have we become subject to authoritarian thought and rule? So leaving aside for the moment the question of how dangerous COVID really is, or whether lockdowns and masks are effective, useful, or detrimental, I'm proposing that authoritarianism would be wrong even if it were to produce net effects that could be defended as beneficial. Authoritarianism is a philosophy of boundary violation in which a person's body, beliefs, speech, association, and movements are subject to non-consensual restriction or modification by the prevailing authority without due process justified by that authority's belief <laughs> or assertion <laughs> that this is done for the greater good or else justified for the sake of authority alone, which often it is, often it is justified on that alone. I guess you could say this is like a Hobbesian kind of argument, right? That uh, there's this horrifying state of nature, this imagined state of nature where human beings tear each other apart in chaos and violence and degradation without the warm, loving embrace of the state to organize our lives for us. And This, of course, is a fiction. It's well established by now and well known by now that indigenous societies 
all over the world have been able to operate and the people in those societies living in harmony with nature without a state without a king that they can uh, flourish and live good lives full lives full human beings but we're told this nightmare story about how we gotta have authority in order to have anything and so therefore we've got to obey authority right or wrong because if we don't obey authority then there is no authority so you gotta obey well that's a Hobbesian view but democracy offers an alternative philosophy in which authorities may not violate these boundaries other than in the mutual enforcement of the sovereign boundaries for all people and with due process. And when I'm talking about democracy here, like, don't get confused. I'm not talking about mob rule. I'm not talking about 51% of the people voting anything into law. No, I'm talking about a system that does have the vote and then also has protections for minority rights individual rights, natural sovereign rights. That's a democracy. And it might be argued that if someone's shown to actively have a contagious infection, it would be democratically permissible to quarantine them against their will. Or if strong evidence existed for the efficacy of masks with widespread agreement with that evidence to compel that person to wear one only for the duration of the infectious period and only if it was an infection that was truly dangerous. That might be justified on the principle of protecting the boundaries of others. But to subject people who do not have an infection to such restrictions is a boundary violation without due process. To require people without infections to submit to this in order to access public accommodations such as stores, restaurants, school, medical care, and travel is also a boundary violation without due process. And so is requiring them to submit to COVID testing or vaccination against their will. As I mentioned before, the argument could be made that such boundary violations should be done anyway, because the benefits of doing so disproportionately outweigh the harms of not doing so. It is argued that we must impose these restrictions on a million people who are not infected because we're unable to identify the thousand people who are infected and that this is done for the greater good. And I just want to be clear that this is an authoritarian argument, not a democratic one. It doesn't make it a good argument or a bad argument. I just want to point out it's, it is an authoritarian one. Since these kinds of restrictions were imposed on the public en masse, regardless of whether we're infected, we were living under authoritarianism in that. 
in violation of our boundaries, due process, and democratic principles. If we are to become an authoritarian people, and no longer a democratic people, well, we ought to be aware of it. But what if the response is not justified, even on authoritarian grounds? What if we were being misled into accepting authoritarian measures that do little to prevent harm or cause more harm than they present? Who is in charge of measuring the harm prevented against the harm caused? What level of danger or risk makes it permissible to jettison democracy for authoritarianism? Who gets to make that determination? If the same logic of authoritarian necessity were applied to a seasonal flu, what would make COVID different? Or would it be different? According to some figures I've seen, the seasonal flu kills over half a million people on Earth every year. And tuberculosis kills a million and a half every year, which was about the same number of deaths attributed to COVID in 2020. And if that's the case, then perhaps we should accept authoritarian rule over our bodies at all times, permanently, forever. But if we don't accept that, how will we know where to draw the line? And how do we know that line has not been redrawn for us in 2020 at the level of ordinary risk or slightly higher than ordinary risk? If that has happened and we accept that precedent moving forward, then we have adopted authoritarianism as the ongoing and permanent paradigm for human governance applicable in all situations of ordinary risk. In the US and in other democracies, our mainstream and social media systems have not permitted this debate to, to occur. This debate regarding the most fundamental democratic and human rights of the people is absent from the news, except on some right-wing news outlets, has, banned, has been banned and censored by Google, Facebook, Twitter. The authorities declare that protests and assemblies in opposition to lockdowns are illegitimate, even as other protests and assemblies addressing different issues are permitted or encouraged. If anything is a signal that authoritarianism has replaced democracy, this is it. And it's what I'd like to explore here. In terms of political alignment, I've found that in the U.S. it is the, polit uh, the political left that had almost uniformly endorsed the authoritarian response. And much of the right did so as well, but there was a contingent on the right that is and was questioning and resisting with almost nothing of the kind found on the left. And that was a big surprise for me. Having aligned myself with the left for decades in opposition to authoritarianism and in support of democracy, well, I would have expected a larger portion of the left to be questioning and resisting this than on the right. 
And so I wonder, has something happened to the left? Or was I simply wrong about what I thought the left was for all those years? Well, people who hold my views on COVID have been largely demonized by those on the left. We are ridiculed, dismissed as right-wing, ignorant, selfish, delusional, psychopathic. I would often hear in 2020, people making those kinds of comments about COVID idiots and so forth, assuming that I agreed with them. <laughs> they had no idea that I'm one of the people they despise. After all, I seem like a reasonable, intelligent person. It's unthinkable that I would oppose the way society responded to COVID. Well, my opposition to lockdowns, social distancing, mandatory masking, and generally speaking, biomedical authoritarianism is the most important political issue to me of my lifetime. And I've been fortunate to live for over 40 years in a largely democratic and free society, despite its flaws. And I've never been subject to anything approaching this kind of government intrusion on my life before, enacted at the most personal level. Not even when I lived in China for seven months. It's not just COVID. I do believe something has changed in people's attitudes about democracy over the years. I remember being a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s. There was this common phrase people would say, it's a free country. It was the kind of thing you might say in response to someone courteously asking permission to share their opinion with you. Sit down next to you or maybe take off their shirt in your presence. And then you'd say, it's a free country. You know, some dude is coming by a summer day outside. He's like, all right, if I take off my shirt, and hey, it's a free country. All right, if I sit down here, it's a free country, right? People would say this. Um, question of women being able to take off their shirts uh, is a different issue. Um, and in that sense, it wasn't and still isn't in most places a free country. But, some side note. Thing is, nobody says it's a free country anymore. That expression's gone the way of the dodo. I think I stopped hearing that expression around the time of 9-11 in the war on terror. Not only does the country not feel free anymore, it no longer seems like a popularly held opinion that it ought to be free. Well, I would rather live in a society where it was legal to discriminate against me for being queer than to live in a society like the one we have now. Or the one that was established during these lockdowns that we apparently have a reprieve from at the moment. The civil liberties and personal rights have been extinguished in favor of the collective's right to impose preemptive biological security measures on any individual. I'd rather live in a society where the rich own everything, and I can't even afford medical care, 
then accept a social order where people agree that from now on, we must stay six feet apart from others and wear masks everywhere. Or at least that it is better to do so anytime we are commanded to by the medical state media authorities. And in this preference for the sacred freedoms of bodily autonomy and personal association, I am so alone on the left that I cannot see myself as even belonging to the left at all anymore. And this is not just about institutions, political parties and leaders, or media figures on the left. It's the regular people, it's the rank and file. For instance, I went on a date in early October, 2020. We met at a park and walked to a picnic table. She insisted that we sit at opposite corners of the table so we could maintain the regulation six feet of distance. So one of the first things she asked me was whether I was excited for the possibility that Trump might die of COVID. <laughs> I don't know if you remember at the time in early October, Trump got COVID and people on the left everywhere were just like, I hope he dies. I hope he dies of COVID or just like, ha ha, he's got what he deserves. You know, all this kind of stuff was going on. So she's like, you excited that Trump? Trump got COVID and might die of COVID. And I'm like, I told her I didn't have any of those kind of feelings about it. And as we talked more about COVID and what's going on, I shared with her my concerns that we could have a totalitarian society on our hands if we don't set boundaries on the exercise of authoritarian state power and protect individual rights, especially the right to bodily sovereignty but she was dismissive of my concerns. And she shared with me that she saw the COVID crisis as an opportunity to impose permanent structural changes on society that would produce what she believed would be beneficial results regarding disease management, climate change, race relations, and policing. And she was unmoved when I shared my belief that individual civil rights and liberties were not only important and sacred to me in my valuing of a free and dignified life as a human being, but are also necessary and important checks on tyranny. They prevent the accumulation of unaccountable power. Well, her response was, she thought I might discover life to be improved in a society in which my individual rights had been extinguished or in which my rights were contingent on the decree of the ruling authority. And that I really couldn't say it would be worse until I'd lived under it. <laughs> Except I was living under it and I knew I didn't like it at all. And I reminded her that once an authoritarian and anti-democratic power structure has been installed, there's no way to remove whoever climbs to the top of the power structure other than revolution or civil war. We might change our minds about the virtues of authoritarianism later if we decide that those in power are not actually ruling in everyone's best interests. But it'll be too late. Well, you know, she shrugged and conceded that I had a point, but it seemed to her to be a minor point. Well, in 2019, I would have been shocked by this conversation. 
um, you know, especially the way it started, just like cold-heartedly like wishing for the death of somebody as like something that should be so universally agreed upon that it's it's a great way to like start a date out like hey i just thought of something we can both agree on no you really hope that person dies of a disease <laughs> it's like what are you are you aware of what you're saying you know it doesn't i know i know you really hate trump i know you think he's the devil incarnate really feel into what you're saying there when you wish death on somebody. But yeah, I've come to expect this kind of attitude from those aligned with the left, where I once would have been shocked. This, that anecdote was just one example, but I've encountered similar versions of this over and over since the pandemic was declared, and the lockdowns were declared. And I've noticed a hostility to democracy expressed in other areas of discourse on the left, particularly on the issues of race and BLM. I live in Portland, Oregon, uh, the beating heart of Antifa <laughs> and the BLM protests and riots in the United States. You know, we, we had the record, right, for the continuous demonstrations. We're just out there. Antifa was out there every night, you know, for like months in 2020. So yeah, it's sort of like front row seats to the theater. And um, well, after the 2016 elections, um, when Trump you know, was first put in, a good friend of mine denounced electoral democracy entirely and joined an Antifa-aligned group. And I've had the chance to discuss politics with him and with many other friends and acquaintances involved with or strongly supportive of the Antifa and BLM movements on the Portland hard left. So one increasingly common thread on the far left is the denouncement of liberals and liberalism. This, uh, this became a favored punching bag of my, my Antifa friend. Although I believe part of this is due to a conflation of the term liberal with the pro-corporate, pro-finance policies of centrist Democrats, which I think would be more accurately described as neoliberal. The hostility to liberalism goes deeper than this. Uh, I'm reminded of a moment in June 2020 here in Portland at the height of the George Floyd protests and rioting, where a group of activists found a statue of George Washington somewhere in the city. Uh, they toppled it and defaced it. Many statues were being targeted at the time, but this one stood out for me. And now I'm not sentimental by any means about Washington or any of the other American founders. Um, you know, I have some soft spots for at least the principles that were set forward by, by figures like Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson but yeah, I don't have any 
sentimentality about these people as as men, as people. Don't believe people should be glorified. And, you know, in the case of someone like Jefferson, the principles that he put into eloquent, beautiful writing were not principles he actually lived by. But the principles of medicine. Setting all that aside, you know, when the statue of Washington came down, you know, I found myself disturbed all the same without any special feelings about Washington. I don't have rose-colored views for the man. Setting aside all the valid critiques one could make of, of George Washington, what was more important to me was what Washington represents to the country. More than any other single person, he represents the Republic itself, founded on the principles of liberal democratic governance and rights. Yes, those rights were withheld from all people except white property owning men at first. But the franchise gradually expanded over the years to all people as the country increasingly lived up to and embraced those principles of liberal democracy that were there from the beginning. And in every case of this successful expansion, it was achieved by appealing to those founding principles. So what does it mean to chuck old George onto the trash heap of history, to deface and dehumanize his image while doing so? Does it just mean that you're a good anti-racist speaking out against a slaveholder? Well, yeah, I'm sure that was the primary motivation. But it's more than that. The prevailing view on the left these days, as I've heard from many proponents, is that liberal democracy itself is actually not a good thing, but was invented as kind of a Trojan horse for patriarchal white supremacy. That we're not to be fooled by, by uh, excuse me, ideologies of individual rights because the liberal colonizers hide behind those notions of rights and equality in order to perpetuate continued evils through manufactured consent. In fact, the left now argues that we should toss equality itself on the scrap heap. It's to be replaced by equity. With equality, the state prohibits discrimination in application of the laws and access to public accommodations so that every citizen has equal access to the democracy and people will be left free to create their own lives and relationships. But this is seen as in insufficient on the left now, because equality is not able to stamp out the prejudice in people's hearts and minds, nor is it able to prevent them from acting accordingly in their private lives. With equity, the authorities step in with a heavier hand, assuming that any difference in the outcomes of people's lives must be the result of demographic identity-based oppression, and therefore the authority is justified in any action intended to impose equal outcomes among members of disparate identity groups. It's not just that Washington was a slave owner that makes his image offensive. It's his status as an icon of liberal democracy. Liberal and democratic values are to be understood as a cloak for the true agenda of patriarchal white supremacist 
oppression. Distribution of equity must take precedence over individual rights. In fact, individual rights are rendered meaningless other than to the extent to which they can be justified by an appeal to equity. Well, I've noticed that this doctrine of equity has also shown up in the COVID ideology. We are always implored to prioritize or center in the prevailing vernacular of equity, to center the safety of those who are at most risk of death or harm from COVID. This centering trumps all other considerations. It would be inequitable if the vulnerable quarantined themselves voluntarily, while the Hale and Hardy were free to take their own risks. Building immunity in the process and reducing the risk they pose to the vulnerable. Instead, the entire society should be forced to social distance, shut down businesses, and submit to mandatory temperature checks, travel restrictions, contact tracing, vaccines, masks, and anything else the public health authorities decree. Because that puts all people in the same equitable boat as the most vulnerable. Those who disagree insist that disease and variations in vulnerability to illness are a natural and unavoidable part of life. But this view is then denounced as selfish, frivolous, callous, ableist, tantamount to wishing death upon the vulnerable. Not only will equity be imposed on human society, equity equity will be imposed on Mother Nature herself. Well, somewhere in the world, there's an 89-year-old person with a heart condition and compromised immunity. They might be able to survive for another six months as long as they can avoid infection, whether from COVID or even the common cold. But if they are infected, they will die within a week or two. Although millions of people's lives will be disrupted against their will in the most intrusive ways, when they are at little to no risk from colds, influenza, or COVID, they should nonetheless be denied the right to mix with other people and live their regular human lives because this might reduce the likelihood that the 89-year-old encounters a virus. The 89-year-old cannot mix with the others without significant risk. Therefore, it is equitable to require all others to live as if they were similarly at risk. Under equity, even that very same 89-year-old will not be allowed to take their own risks either. Maybe that 89-year-old would rather spend their final years, months, or weeks connecting with their loved ones, touching, smiling, talking, seeing each other's faces in person, free to socialize, play games of bridge, and reminisce, even if it means increasing the chance of catching COVID or another infection and die earlier than they otherwise would. Well, that choice will be denied them because somewhere else in the world is another immunocompromised person who would rather isolate themselves from viruses at whatever cost. In purest form, equity insists that the most physically vulnerable, the most frightened and risk-adverse person in the entire world will set the baseline rules that all the rest of us will be expected to submit to. 
Another recent trend on the left is that one's opinion is not really considered valid on anything, unless it comes from a personal experience of loss or disempowerment. And so, in the interests of communicating with the left, I'll share this. My mother died from a coronavirus. Or at least she died from the common cold, which is often a coronavirus. And she was receiving intensive treatment for a cancer that had metastasized. And it was predicted she only had one year to live, even with the treatment and would die earlier without it. Well, the intensive treatment killed a lot of the cancer inside of her and also suppressed her white blood cells and immune system, leaving her immunocompromised and vulnerable to the common cold, which we, she was unlucky enough to catch while in the hospital receiving this treatment. The cold ravaged her system she lost the ability to breathe without a machine. She lost the ability to open her eyes or speak. And she died about two to three weeks later. I had the chance to see her just for a few days before, before her death came, but she couldn't open her eyes or speak at that point. I think she might've been able to hear me. Now that was back in 1994. We didn't have social distancing or general lockdowns in those days. But immunocompromised people like my mom were still dying from viruses. And there's an argument from an equity standpoint that social distancing should be made a permanent feature of human life in order to provide ongoing protection for people like her. If those restrictions had been in place in 1994, and if they were effective, maybe my mother would never have caught that coronavirus. Maybe she would have been able to live for one year more. An extra year with my mother would have been priceless to me. But even so, I can say this. I would not wish that the rest of the world be forced to live at six feet of distance from each other, faces covered by masks and all the rest of it, even if that would have successfully prevented her from contracting that affection. I'm certain she would not have wished this fate on the world either. But even though my personal experience of loss gives me permission to speak on this issue, according to the equity left, my wishes and her wishes would still not prevail in that system. Because somewhere in the world, there's a kid that would wish to impose his fate on the world for one more year with her mother. Or somewhere in the world, there's a mother who would impose it on the world for herself. As long as there is at least one who would wish it, we are all compelled to comply. As the now disgraced Andrew Cuomo instructed us back in March of 2020, any measure is justified as long as it saves just one life. <laughs> there cannot be a clearer, more concise summation of authoritarianism possible. If we dissent, we are heartless, callous, and selfish. Even though we would also selflessly choose our own death, 
rather than extend our own life at the expense of the world's freedoms. Meanwhile, some members of the compassionate, soft, and selfless left pump their fists, hoping for Trump's death from COVID, citing karma or just desserts. Well, I recognize the equity doctrine as having roots in Marx's from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. And it seems like a great formula on the surface. It did to me. When I first heard it as a junior high student, and um, it continued to seem like a great idea to me until recently, when I started to realize what it can mean when taken seriously and implemented, as illustrated above. I think there's still a good argument for it when limited to wealth redistribution and antitrust enforcement. But in 2020, thanks to COVID and the identitarian culture wars, I've come to see that the prevailing winds of the left, at least in the US, increasingly view individual rights and liberties of one's body, movement, speech, association, conscience, religion, and privacy as subject to state-imposed equity principles. And that is a recipe for totalitarianism. I'm now met with scorn by left-leaning people when I speak of the importance of individual rights and democracy. This is increasingly seen as a right-wing artifact of imperialist, colonial, capitalist, white supremacist, or patriarchal culture forms. On the far left, to insist on the value and importance of such things is to brand yourself a dreaded liberal. On the center left, these values are just shrugged off as irrelevant. The neoliberal center left has put its faith in meritocracy, a religion of academic, scientific, financial priesthood that sorts through its supplicants, admits the worthy into the Ivy League and to equivalent prestigious institutions, indoctrinates them with truth, filters out those who are unresponsive to the truth, and then plugs the rest into positions of power in medicine, finance, government, media, law, and science. We are meant to trust in this system and in its ability to produce people with more knowledge, wisdom, and intelligence than that of the public at large. And we are meant to obey their declarations of what is true and what courses of actions to take. Democracy is not only unnecessary, it's a detriment, unless people agree to vote the way they've been instructed to vote. On all sides of the left, there seems to be an agreement that a socio-political medical order ought to be imposed over the objections of those advocating for individual rights and democratic values. So again, I return to the question, how can this be? What am I now to understand about the left that I did not previously understand? What is the left? Well, the term left has its origins in the French Revolution, referring to those on the left side of the National Assembly who opposed the authority of the monarchy, nobility, and church in favor of vesting authority in the people, whereas those on the right side of the assembly retained loyalty to these traditional institutions of power and rule. 
this original definition still seems like the best and most relevant way to look at the right and left. Either wing could be on the side of dictatorship or democracy. It's just a question of whether they purport to rule in the name of the people or in the name of hereditary and religious traditions. Well, in France, the left soon prevailed in the contest for power. Soon after, it produced the authoritarian Reign of Terror, led by Robespierre, characterized by mass arrests and executions of accused counter-revolutionaries and other enemies of the state. Lest one dismiss this appellation of terror as derogatory towards Robespierre and those who followed him, it seems he actually claimed terror, the word terror with pride, as a virtuous and necessary element of governance. In his own words, written while presiding over the reign of terror, quote, Robespierre, if virtue is the spring of a popular government in times of peace, the spring of that government during a revolution is virtue combined with terror. Virtue without which terror is destructive. Terror without which virtue is impotent. Let's read that again. Virtue without which terror is destructive. Terror without which virtue is impotent. Terror is only justice propped severe and inflexible. It is then an emanation of virtue. It is less a distinct principle than a natural consequence of the general principle of democracy applied to the most pressing wants of the country. So this is, you know, an eloquent translation from the original French. Um, what is he saying there? Terror is just justice, prompt, severe, and inflexible, and is therefore an emanation of virtue. Basically, if you believe yourself to be virtuous, then you can be even more virtuous when you exercise terror upon people in your self-righteous judgment and violent executions and terrorizings. That was Robespierre. So he administered the reign of terror in France with dictatorial power as head of something called the Committee of Public Safety. Hmm? It was understood then, as now, that the need for public safety combined with terror can effectively justify and implement totalitarian rule, even in the name of the people, even in the name of democracy and the left. So I want to be clear here, I'm not making the argument that the left equals totalitarianism and the right equals freedom as many of those on the right believe to be true. 
Instead, I now see both right and left can be vehicles for totalitarian rule. If I were in Tsarist Russia, my call for individual rights, democracy and human dignity might be denounced as left wing. 10 or 20 years later in Soviet Russia, my calls for the same thing might be denounced as right wing. When I opposed the theft of the 2000 election, America's war on terror in response to 9-11, and the anti-democratic policies and ideas that came with that movement, such as torture, unilateral preemptive warfare, mass surveillance, censorship, suspension of habeas corpus. Well, back then my ideas were denounced as radical left-wing. And I thought that meant I was a radical left-winger. <laughs> now I'm opposing the theft of the 2020 election and the anti-democratic policies and ideas that come with the COVID lockdown, such as mandatory masks, social distancing, business closures, testing, temperature checks, vaccines, as well as the contact tracing, mass surveillance, censorship, and redefinition of the human being into a presumed vector of disease. And now my ideas are denounced as radical right-wing. Both the right and the left can drift into dense expressions of boundary violations, authoritarianism, and disregard for the divinity of others. It would help heal the United States politically and other places in the world if each side could see this in themselves as well as the other. The right can become fatalistic regarding cruelty in the way of the world, forgetting that as expressions of the divine, human beings have the option to awaken and turn away from cruelty. This tacit acceptance of cruelty, while accurately acknowledging the shadow aspects of life, can become habitual and systemic, gaining expression in police and military brutality, torture, mass imprisonment, economic oppression, deprivation of basic needs. Furthermore, the right's preference for traditional cultural forms can also lead to the oppression of minority religious, ethnic, racial, gender, and cultural groups. It can lead to the violation of the rights and boundaries of individuals in those groups. Now, the left can, can approach authoritarian disregard for the divinity and all others in the opposite extreme, enforcing equity in the attempt to impose equal outcomes on all people, categorized as demographic categories, without regard to hum, human individual rights. A secular belief system is adopted, such as critical race theory or a mechanistic scientific materialism, which reduces life to bundles of energy and matter that bounce off each other in a struggle for power. The rigid and extreme expression of the left lacks awareness that this belief system is actually an establishment of a religion and imposes these beliefs on all people as incontrovertible truth, oppressing those who believe otherwise. Even disagreements of fact among members of the same religion, such as dissenting scientists, doctors, or academics, are prohibited as heretical to the true faith. So with increasing dogmatism and rigidity, 
These beliefs are imposed according to equity, without regard to individual rights. With all of life recast into a totalizing narrative of a struggle for power between the oppressed and oppressors, power becomes the only currency or objective in life. Any exercise of power becomes just if rationalized as serving the interests of equity and the oppressed. These are the shadow forms of the sacred right and sacred left. But in contrast, the sacred expression of the right draws from ancient traditions and ways of living that carry a certain organic wisdom about how life, nature, and human beings work. It recognizes that nature is often unjust and sometimes cruel, that power is not apportioned equally, and it recognizes that a dignity can be found in affirming life as it is, adapting to it, facing hardship with courage, and taking solace from spiritual forms that transcend worldly power. Life is more than measurable matter and energy bouncing off each other. There's more to social life than a struggle for economic and political power, prolongation of life, or achieving increasing degrees of safety. Not only is there more to life than this, but whatever makes life meaningful is found beyond these things. The sacred rite is better able to see the religious nature of scientific materialism and is better able to recognize doctrinal disputes within the faith and give a fair hearing to its heretics and apostates. The sacred rite recognizes that some values are worth dying for, that some risks in life are worthwhile because they are truly risks. Dying is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. It is worse to survive without truly living. There's a freedom and a dignity in making one's own mistakes and failures and claiming them as one's own. To die on one's feet rather than live on one's knees. Whereas the sacred expression of the left is to recognize that secular belief systems are just as religious as spiritual systems. The sacred left leans into the universal expression of spirituality recognizing the truth that unites all religious traditions and independent spiritual paths while not favoring one over another. The sacred left recognizes suffering and injustice where it exists, especially in places where it has been invisible, taken for granted, or assumed to be impossible to change, not just among humans, but among non-human animals, ecosystems, and the whole of Gaia. The sacred left seeks healing of these hurts, using compassion, empathy, and generosity of spirit as medicine, and to inspire innovative approaches. This healing is guided by the sacred oath of healers, to do no harm. The sacred left encourages and expands democracy with greater levels of opportunity and autonomy for regular people. It supports the free expression of unusual, eccentric, and even expensive ideas in art, believing that medicine is found in the unique, in those members of society dismissed by the mainstream as oddballs, weirdos, and eclectic. The sacred expression of the left addresses the disparities and concentrations of ownership, recognizing that democracy and the free dignity and rights of people is harmed and diminished when vast disparities, vast disparities of wealth exist. The sacred left does not just rectify inequalities in ownership, 
but also promotes the release of ownership, the return of property that is currently owned to the realm of the unowned. I'm suggesting here a, a move to sacred politics based on the sacred qualities in both left and right that I just mentioned. Authoritarian control, domination, and boundary violations can be found on both sides when the sacred is, dom is dormant and become totalitarian when pushed to the extreme. Likewise, an authoritarian center can play right and left against each other, encouraging authoritarian expressions on both sides, ensuring that neither side will unite with the other in sacred agreement. This is the situation I see playing out now in the US and elsewhere. But by shining the light of truth on authoritarian forms, the sacred political expressions of left, right, and center become more accessible. I believe there's also an elephant in the room that is driving the greater shift toward authoritarianism in recent years. Well, what has happened to us? Why don't we say it's a free country anymore? Why don't we want to say it? COVID didn't create the new politics. It revealed them. I noticed the shift start to take place after 9-11, but I suspect that event merely unleashed the new politics rather than creating them. I was similarly shocked in 2001 at how the whole country lined up behind the program to erase their democratic rights and wage an unending war against the entire planet. Those who were not with us were against us. <laughs> it hadn't occurred to me that the American people were so weak, so easily frightened and misled. Was there more at work under the surface than fear of terrorism? Well, I think the turn of the century changed things. I remember how it was in the 90s. A lot of our focus as a people was on reviewing the events of the 20th century. It was hard to imagine the future in a new millennium. The year 2000 had always seemed like this kind of ending point. But then it came. And we started looking forward at the next century to come, wondering what it would be like. And we did a few mental calculations about what humanity was doing to the planet and projected these calculations forward 100 years and we started to despair. Behind the ways the left is shifting today, I detect a rising sympathy for a kind of eco-fascism or eco-authoritarianism. If, if we're to understand fashion, fascism as a specifically right-wing threat. In particular, the COVID lockdowns are subtly suggested as contributing to a beneficial eco-authoritarian purpose. I suspect this is the real elephant in the room that helps explain why the left and society at large have become friendlier to authoritarianism and more hostile to democracy in the past 20 years. It also helps explain why there seems to be a rump contingent on the right that defends liberal democratic rights. It is common on the right, at least on the US, to doubt that the world is truly in ecological peril due to human activities. But for those of us who agree that this ecological peril does exist, 
we're faced with the need for significant global change in human behavior to avert or mitigate ecological catastrophe. And as the decades progress without such a global change, the anxiety, the grief, the dread we feel compounds, as does our openness to drastic measures. When the lockdowns were imposed globally, I noticed left-leaning eyes light up, beholding the opportunity. The ability to induce radical behavior change was precisely the thing that had previously seemed hopelessly out of reach. And look, it has now happened overnight. It requires three ingredients, elimination of individual rights, induced obedience to technocratic authorities, and most important, crippling terror, as first recommended by Robespierre. It was only by inducing terror into the global populace that the lockdowns and total transformation of our human lives was achieved. It seems clear to me that the transformation of our human lives has always been the actual point in all of this. That's why it's important to continually flood our minds with case and death counts, with cautionary tales about long COVID, it's why we need people everywhere in masks to remind us visibly of our danger at all times. Why we're simultaneously told both that we can't have our lives back until we get the vaccine and that we can never actually achieve immunity to COVID with a vaccine or through natural exposure. It's why we need to censor shame and otherwise silence dissenting voices that urge us to calm down and release our fears. If our meritocratic technocracy can impose total control over people due to the fears of the virus, they can use that control to force people into eco-friendly behaviors as well. People just don't have enough terror of ecological collapse to accomplish this. They need the terror of the virus, a terror more immediate. As we've seen, this terror has been more effective than anything in human history to induce mass obedience to authority. We even see how the wagons are circled around COVID skepticism, just as they've been circled around vaccine skepticism and climate change skepticism. These are all denounced as conspiracy theories, disinformation, and anti-science, and are accordingly subject to censorship and silencing, removal from the public discourse. People cannot be allowed to consider or even entertain these ideas because if the authorities lose control over people's ideas, beliefs, and trust, they lose the ability to leverage terror as a means to authority. Activation of shame and anger are also powerful motivators to induce obedience. And that's why our toxic discourse on race and gender is encouraged on both the right and left sides of the divide to promote obedience to one side as defense against shame and then anger at the other side, who should feel ashamed but don't. Both sides conscripted into war against each other in service to the terror that rules from the center. It seems we have a golden opportunity to induce unprecedented levels of behavior change due to fear of COVID. 
The same logic that applies to COVID can be applied to any other infection, any other disease, real or imagined. That logic as applied to infectious disease from here on out will result in a permanent regime of autocracy by the public health authorities over human rights and sovereignty. Since the public health authorities are one and the same as the Merito technocratic class at large, they can also impose a restructuring of society that will save the environment because the environment is more important than anything else. So it's worth it to surrender our rights and sovereignty to the technocrats. They will exercise their total power wisely and save us all. In fact, we can't trust regular people to vote on this and have a democratic say. We've already seen how they will fall prey to conspiracy theories and their ignorance and weak-mindedness. Henceforth, the human being is to be seen as an inherently selfish being, as a loathsome vector of disease, violence, self-interest, bigotry, delusion, and destruction, unless properly controlled. When fully obedient and controlled by the, merit the meritocracy, the human being can be transformed into an efficient unit of positive change. And so we will save the planet. All we need to do is end democracy or prolong the illusion of democracy, reserving veto power for the meritotechnocrats when people are about to choose incorrectly. We will continue living in fear of infectious disease with abdication of our most personal and sacred rights and dignities to the public health authorities. We will continue to believe only what we are told to believe by the authorities and by the other voices cleared by the censors. And even if sometimes, or a lot of the time, those authorities turn out to be wrong, even if they are outright lying to us, we must continue to believe and obey, recognizing that sometimes they will need to deceive us in order to maintain the necessary emotional and cognitive states that perpetuate our obedience. They will need to deceive us to induce the behaviors they've wisely chosen for us. They even declared they were lying to us for the greater good when they told us not to wear masks. Then we were meant to believe that they're not lying when they told us to wear them. But even if they're lying now or then, whenever they're lying, desiring to train us into unquestioning obedience and submission, well, we ought to obey them anyway. Their choices for us have been selected for the greater good, whether based on lies or truth. And it's the duty of all good people to get with the program <laughs> and, and comply. Now, you might ask me, I hear you railing against totalitarianism, Relendra, advocating for democracy and the sacred rights of man. But if your way of life were allowed to prevail, who would control the humans? How would we prevent them from continuing to gobble up the world and destroy it? in short-sighted pursuit of self-interest in a planetary tragedy of the commons. I didn't realize I was an authoritarian before, but now that you mention it, 
I'm all on board for whatever it takes to save the planet. I mean, I'd like to live in freedom and democracy too, but that's just a naive, childish dream. And besides, I'm sure the meritotechnocracy will allow us as much freedom as is good for us. So it's time to wake up to the hard truth of adulthood and recognize that we must sacrifice ourselves and our freedoms for the good of the collective. Those unwilling to sacrifice must be made to do so, by force, if necessary. It's the only way we can survive. We've now confirmed that European people inflicted a failed experiment in democracy and individualism on the world, induced by the egoic illusion of separation. Their diseased and ruined individualistic outlook on the world has now spread across the planet, causing the sixth mass extinction. And the only way forward is collective obedience to an authority who can force people to take correct action for the sake of Gaia. Well, I understand sentiments of that kind because there's a part of me that responds to the logic of the argument. Ecocide is an existential threat that takes precedence over everything else. Humanity needs to act as one to change every aspect of how we live our lives to successfully address the threat. Therefore, eco-authoritarianism is the correct response. It's the correct response for the planet. It'll require giving up things like individual rights and liberties and democracy. So there's a part of me that thinks that way. But that part of me does not win out in my internal dialogue. I don't know how to avert ecological crisis without ecologically oriented global authoritarianism. I also don't know precisely what level of danger we're actually looking at for the planet's ecology. I do know there's been deception and manipulation on this issue. And it seems that that deception and manipulation has been always in the direction of trying to prime people for this global authoritarian response in the name of saving the planet. And even if those global technocratic authoritarians were actually ruling in good faith, with their totalitarian powers. I'm still skeptical that they would be able to successfully reverse ecocide, even if they legitimately wanted to do it. Indeed, I believe it's likely that the types of minds our meritotechnocracy elevates to power in such a system would choose the wrong responses they would likely see the world as a mathematical equation to be solved. As more power and more force was applied, more adverse consequences would arise and the crisis would continue to deepen. They would try to do things like geoengineer the atmosphere and the oceans, 
They would attempt things like genetic engineering of plants and animals. They would try to bioengineer human beings themselves. In fact, they are already attempting these kinds of things. They would try to redesign the entirety of Gaia to fit the mathematical model produced by the algorithms of AI supercomputers. And in the process, they would produce more dysfunction, disease, and ill health for Gaia and all her organs, organisms, water, soil, and air systems. They would also do immense damage to human beings, not just as individuals, but to humanity collectively. Human beings are one of Gaia's most remarkable productions. Our freedom, love, independence, and dignity is the freedom, love, independence, and dignity of Gaia herself. In extinguishing these through authoritarian dominance of human beings, these qualities would be extinguished in Gaia as well. Well, why would it go this way, maybe you ask? Why wouldn't our meritotechnocrats rule with wisdom instead of folly? Well, they would rule that way because that's the way of authoritarianism and the technology of dominance and control. It's the way of the machine. It is the imposition of machine principles onto Gaia that is causing harm to the earth in the first place. The meritotechnocracy is a machine and it selects for human beings adapted to machine thinking. Well, what happens then if we go my way and we respect the dignity and divinity of individual humans in our own human laws and ways? Well, my answer is that if we're able to pull that off, we also have a chance of respecting the dignity and divinity of animals, plants, land, water, air, and Gaia herself. And I don't see how we have a chance of seeing those qualities elsewhere if we're not able to see it and respect it in ourselves. And I don't have a plan for how all this works. I don't have a flow chart. And I admit that my suggestion is a spiritual call to trust in life, to trust in the light, to trust in love. There can be no guarantees there. I don't know how it plays out in the succession of events. Instead, I tune into those qualities of light, love, and life. And I intend that it is wrong to force people to be apart when they wish to be together. It is wrong to force masks onto people when their trust in the need for masks has not been earned. It is wrong to silence people when they long to speak their heart. It is wrong to force or coerce medical treatment on people who do not consent. And I believe we can trust people to be free because we can trust Gaia and people are part of Gaia. If we're faced with an extremely dangerous infectious disease, people will be able to tell and they will respond appropriately. For instance, if there was a virus going around right now that killed one out of three people, it'd be obvious to everybody. I'd be keeping my distance from most people on my own accord. I wouldn't need my rights to be taken away, and neither would anyone else. If I thought masks were helpful to protect against or stop the spread of a disease like that, I'd wear one. I wouldn't need to be forced. 
If I thought a vaccine was a good risk to protect me against it, I'd take it. I wouldn't need to be forced. And I'm sure it would work the same way for others. The very fact that there is resistance to all these restrictions of our humanity shows that the evidence isn't strong enough to convince everyone that the restrictions are justified. If some people were convinced but not others, it would indicate a mid-level danger and a mid-level degree of precautions would be adopted voluntarily, appropriate to the risk. We can trust people to be free. Or maybe we can't. Maybe we can't trust Gaia. She produced human beings, and that was a mistake. We can't trust people or Gaia either. We can't trust the wisdom of people to know when mixing with the others is a good way to develop immunity for ourselves and for the vulnerable others who will benefit from our immunity. And when the risk is great enough that we need to keep our distance, we can't trust people to fall in love with Gaia again if left to their own devices. We can't trust people to take action in harmony with and in service to her. But there's one thing we can trust. Even though we can't trust Gaia and we can't trust humans, we got lucky when humans discovered and invented machines. We can trust the machines. Machines are trustworthy, unlike life. Machines are a perfectly contained system of abstraction, power, and control. They operate with precision, measurement, and mathematic certainty. The more complex the machine, the more we can trust it. And the most powerful, the most trustworthy machines are those mega machines that transcend physical form and extend to the realm of the conceptual. We can trust bureaucracy, a mechanized system of hierarchical relationships programmed to take action according to its prime directives. We can trust the machinery of academics, which converts raw human substrate into trusted machine-honed technocrats. We can trust the machinery of meritocracy, which selects for the best functioning and well-oiled of the mechanized humans and places them at the top of the mechanized bureaucracies. We can trust computers, AI, algorithms, and probabilistic modeling. They all analyze data with unbiased precision and produce answers that technocrats can rely on. We can trust economics and finance, mechanized systems of assigning value to objects and actions that guide us into the most efficient and sensible allocations of our resources and energy. The good news is that humanity has already put its fate and the fate of Gaia into the hands of these machines. And the verdict is in from the machinery. Human beings and other forms of life are too unpredictable and irrational. They do not behave as they should. They are teeming with disease and contagion. They must be sequestered, quarantined, vaccinated, re-engineered, surveilled, and silenced with reprogrammed DNA. They must be improved by integrating machinery and algorithmic AI processes into their biology, computerized implants, microchips, and neuralinks with continual and universal wireless internet connection must be maintained, continually moderating and modifying the human with input from the mechanized intelligence of AI. The only danger is that the humans will remember they are alive that they don't want to be machines. 
They will reclaim control of their lives and let life be the guide. They will demote machinery to the service of life. Well, that must be present, prevented at all costs if we are to salvage the future. Human beings and life itself must be forced to serve and obey the wisdom of the measured precision and controlled, relentless logic of the machine. Or maybe that's not such good news. <laughs> Finally, my answer is that my spiritual attunement tells me to trust light, life, and love. I wish to stand or fall by that. I wish to live and die by it. I will live in trust of these guides. And when it comes time to cross the threshold of death, I will die into the truest of these guides. I will trust that this trust will serve Gaia best, either to help her live and heal or to die with dignity. Gaia won't live forever, any more than humanity will, any more than I will. I suggest that human beings live and die with dignity and love. If we are really coming to the final years of humanity, I suggest that as we die out, we die together in our sovereignty, holding hands, hugging, kissing, breathing, singing, dancing, and facing our fears with love and gratitude of being. And if we are not coming to the end of humanity, if humanity and Gaia continue to live for some time yet, I suggest we live together in our sovereignty, holding hands, hugging, kissing, breathing, singing, dancing, and facing our fears with love and gratitude and being. Thanks for listening. I'm Melendra. And I'm signing off. See you next time.